are listening to the Traditional Outdoors Podcast. This week's episode is sponsored by Life and Longbows. Life and Longbows is the first collection of public works written by my dear friend and Traditional Outdoors co-host Nick View. While it is about traditional bow hunting, Life and Longbows isn't your typical bow hunting book. In Life and Longbows, Nick laces up his boots and places you inside his shoes to experience the failures and successes of a young traditionalist navigating the pitfalls of a newly discovered pastime. While many works of hunting literature are from a more professional perspective, Nick's is refreshingly different. He didn't start shooting or hunting with a bow until he was 27 and had little knowledge or instruction in either activity. The result is a unique perspective that is full of honesty, meaning, as well as humor. Now, I've been reading Nick's writings for many years on lifeandlongbows.com and was fortunate enough to get a sneak peek at the finished product. I enjoyed it immensely, and I know you will too. The Kindle version is now available on Amazon. Simply bring up Amazon.com, search for Life and Longbows, and download it to your phone, tablet, or desktop. And from there, you can also choose to order a paperback copy of the book as well. A third option is also available to order a copy, and that is directly from Nick's website, lifeandlongbows.com. And from there, you will receive a signed copy of Nick's book. I know I can speak for Nick in saying he hopes you will enjoy reading the book as much as he enjoyed writing it. Hey, Nick, how are you, buddy? Good, Steve. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic, and uh, I know we've been we've been talking about this and 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 really looking forward to uh, to getting this this next recording going. And and we've got uh, we've got our good friend Jay St. Charles back on the line. How are you doing, Jay? Doing good, doing good, fellas. Good to be here. So, so Nick's been all amped up about this because uh, we're actually going to uh, talk a little bit about some uh, some events uh, surrounding Nick's favorite book, which I I believe I'm the one that introduced you to that book. Uh, is that right, Nick? Well, not only that, but you gave me the book. I gave you my original copy. <laughs> you because your, yeah, you gave me the original signed copy that you had because you got the leather-bound one, correct? I did. Uh, I, I managed to talk to Jay and got a, um, or was it? No, maybe it was Suzanne. I think I got it from Suzanne. I, I got a, a matching set <laughs> sure. of the, uh, and we're talking about bows on the Little Delta. Um, yep. Uh, but I also got a copy of Billets to Bows and matching numbers. And when I did that, I think I sent mine. Actually, no, I sent it to you before I bought that. I bought it after the fact. But regardless, um, still your is it still your favorite? Not to put any pressure on you because Jay's on the other line, but is it still your is it still no, your favorite? No, oh, that's my, it is. Not my book. It's my dad's book. So I, 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 I know, but you're, you're, you're still listening in on the other end. <laughs> no, it, it is, and I'll tell you why it is. Um, basically because – so when I first read the book, I had heard that it was a fantastic – or when I first heard of the book, I'd heard it was a fantastic hunting book. And um, – you know, and I heard there was some cool back and forth with Fred Bear and whatnot in there and and just a lot of really cool history stuff in there. But when I read the book, but what, what really got me was the characters involved, the dialogue between them and what was going on when they weren't hunting. Uh, the camp and the, the camps and the cabins and the Cedar Chalet. Um, 
and you know mice in the syrup and and <laughs> pa- pancakes in the morning and 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 when men smelled like men when men smelled like men exactly <laughs> and and that's where i started thinking that's the first realization i had where i was kind of like you know a, a guy could write about this stuff and that might you know the hunting's a gim you know the hunting's there the hunting's a given but a man could hunt or could write about all this stuff and and make whole whole books out of it and that really got me focusing on character development and dialogue and all the all the special sauce of a hunt that I didn't think a lot of people were writing about at the time when I started life in longbows. So I am, uh, and you know, of course, since then there's been a few that are really great. Um, but that's why Bows on the Little Delta has a special place in my heart. Um, you just feel like you're there with Glenn and seeing all these other people, these historical figures and, and buddies and, and interacting at camp. And you could, you could feel, you can kind of, you know, you can almost hear the, the playfulness and the cynicism and the sarcasm and the, and like he's, like he's razzing his buddies right in front of you, you know, that kind of thing or, or or how fond he is of his heart hunting partners. And I love that. Um, so yeah. That's that's what about you, Steve? What do you what do you what, what, why do you like bows so much? So you know, for all of the reasons that you said, and I I, I truly think um, uh, Glenn just had a way of writing that puts you uh, it 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 puts you right there beside him. It was all I mean it was it was it was you were part of the adventure. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there was there was definitely some insightfulness uh, in a lot of the things he said. Uh, you know, when men smelled like men, those kind of things that just you know really hit home. Um, my favorite chapter, and I wished I'd I wished I'd taken the time to do my research. Shame on me uh, to go back and pull exactly what chapter it is and the actual quote. But you know, the um, Jay, the first bow I actually had you build me. Um, we named it Charisma because that was uh, uh, a closing passage in one of the chapters where uh, your dad was talking about the the various the various, um, for lack of a better word, celebrities that we've known in um, the traditional archery and the traditional yeah, bow hunting community. I, I remember all that. Yeah, uh, yeah. Fred Fred Bear yeah. and and Howard Hill and and others, and you know he was. He was talking about what made them what made them special. What what made them the people that we all then and now still look up to. And and again, I don't remember the exact wording, uh, but it was to the effect of it wasn't about the number of animals that they that they they took with archer equipment. It wasn't about the size of the animals. It was about a quality and a trait that they had that no one else did. Charisma. And that just really, it just really hit home with me. And as soon as I read it, I said, I've got to figure out a way to immortalize that, <laughs> that, that, that paragraph. And, and you actually uh, pinned that on the belly of, of my bow, which we named Charisma. 
So yeah, yeah, that was that set a record for a script on a bow for me. <laughs> came, yeah, I remember came, I asked you if you could write that small. But I was happy to small. do that. It came out well. Yeah, yeah. Well, and when I first sure. saw it on the belly there, I said, "How the hell did he do that?" <laughs> it was more than one take on it, actually. So yeah. oh, did you never told me that? <laughs> well, I I had a practice run or two first, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep. But, well, it, it uh, yeah. turned out it turned out really good, and it's actually uh, still one of my favorite bows and actually cherished possessions. I'll even go that far. I, I love that bow, and you know. So uh, before we really get into the meat of the matter, you know, just a few uh, weeks back, I had Tom Jurgensen on, and we were actually talking about our our antelope hunt in uh, 2016, and that was a hunt that was 34 years. Uh, in the dreaming, I had been wanting to do that since I was like 16. And when I sat down and started thinking about, you know, equipment I was taking and so forth, that bow just, that had to be the bow that I took. And while, you know, I am nowhere near (laughs) the level of, of, of charisma, um, as, as your dad or, or Fred Bear or, or Howard Hill by any stretch of the means, but I still think it's one of the coolest things ever that I was hunting with charisma when I took uh, a, a pronghorn antelope that I'd been dreaming of for, for 34 years, and it ended up being um, my first Pope and Young class animal. So, uh, I, you know, that that's the kind of thing to me that there's no way I could have I could have written that and had it be any more <laughs> meaningful than it was. Sure, sure. That that was a heck of a hunt, wasn't it? Boy, it it yeah. it really was. And uh, like I said, just so many so many cool things about it that all all came together in the span of a few days. But but anyway, that's another story. And like I said, Tom and I kind of already beat that up a few weeks ago. So what Nick and I had had talked about, really wanted to to get you on here um, uh, for again was uh, you know how did how did the, the, the bows on the little Delta, um, and maybe you even want to start with, you know, what, what was bows on the little Delta? Where did that name come from? But really, you know, where did it, where did that get started? Well, the, uh, you mean the, 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 the direction for the hunt in general of so the, I, those, I, those hunts I, up there or the, uh, or the book. The so I guess, I guess, you know, not the book. Um, I, I, there's still copies out there. I think people should, should definitely pick up the book and, and, and read the book themselves. But really, you know, I, I guess first, let's just go with, in your words, describe what bows on the little Delta. Where, what is the little Delta? Uh, what's, what's the general area and so forth first? Well, anyway. it's, 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 it's part of the Brooks Range in kind of central Alaska, uh, North Central, and uh, yeah, it's it's kind of bounded by some big mountains, uh, Mount Deborah, Mount Hess. Uh, it's a very rugged area, uh, and uh, what how they found it is is written up in the book. But they, my the reason they went up there in the first place was was that they uh, again, uh, as we discussed in a last time we spoke my my dad was one of his directions and goals was to get bow hunting established and and 
And one thought he'd had was that he could prove bow hunting was was a viable means of of game management was to take it up north, show that you could harvest moose and, and caribou and and the big animals of Alaska with the bow and arrow, and, and then it worked. And uh, so he, that's what he thought he needed to do, and it's what he wanted to do. That's where his dreams had kind of led him. And uh, so he, then he, then how to get up there, how to get up there, and uh, the uh, statehood was was looming on Alaska at this time, and. Uh, and there was kind of a fledgling company called Alaska Airlines that was that figured it would be a big part of, of Alaska once it became a state. And uh, so he he uh, he thought, well, maybe I can pitch the idea of, of maybe making a movie about bow hunting in Alaska to Alaska Airlines. Maybe they'd like to be part of such a movie. And uh, so that's the first thing he did. And then he come to find out, he went into talk to the decision makers and, and there's this old scoutmaster <laughs> uh, who was who was one of the decision makers I think that was Sandy Stewart and and so they had a really good talk and and uh, Alaska Airlines had a, uh, a young filmmaker by the name of Dick Bolding that was was all ready to go and and do such a thing and he was a bow hunter and he was a filmmaker and 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 he had such a great personality; he fit right in with everybody else that, that Dad had in mind, and and uh, so the the first trip up the Little Delta that was 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 sponsored, and uh, with the idea of making a movie. So so they went to do that, and and uh, the the team that went north on that trip they 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 needed Dad needed some fellows from down here, people he knew really well, and. Uh, he, uh, there was a group that were they were part of the uh, local archery scene down here. That you know, back to the field archery and the archery ranges and all that. And uh, several fellows that he had done a lot of bow hunting with, and they were also uh, some of them were active in, in establishing bow hunting in Washington State and all that sort of thing. And, and uh, but he these were the guys that he'd been bow hunting with down here and they had, they had together they had built a, a little cedar chalet up in the central cascades that uh, was written up in the book uh, talked about as the cedar chalet and uh, yeah, that and, the, the and cedar the, chalet is actually pretty pretty famous from a from a uh, it's become so yeah. right <laughs> from a from a from a traditional and, bow hunting perspective it's pretty famous well, it, what they did was they built this. They they got this bow hunting area for in the heart of Mule Deer Country, and it became a bow hunting only season. It was called Nation Creek, and it was open from September into November. And uh, and they thought, well, if we'd had a some kind of a semi permanent camp up here, we could do a better hunt. And so they, uh, his friends Bob Kelly and and uh, uh, Bob Arvine and Bill Jardine. Uh, were close friends, and Jardine had a horse, and uh, and Bill and uh, or the two Bobs, Bob Arvine and Bob Kelly, were both pretty handy at building things. And Dad had, had built some cabins in his time, and so they they got together and they mostly from down cedar. Oh, they might have had to down a cedar or two in the process. They 
they went up in this area and and it was uh it was one of these areas where it's kind of checkerboarded and some of the some of the property belonged to the forest service at the time some belonged to a private timber company and nobody really knew where they were up there they were just about two and a half miles in off the road in the middle of nowhere up sure. there and on a creek and they found this nice spot by a creek to build this thing and uh they put up this cedar cabin and they figured if if they got about three or four years use out of it that it would have been worth building it that was the initial thought and uh Gee, 60 years later, it's still standing. <laughs> now, uh, now, Jay, about uh, so one question: how how about how big was what? Well, I guess is if it's still standing. How how big is this this chalet? Well, you know, I, I, my just thinking about it right now, it's probably about about uh, 10 feet by 20 feet. It's pretty narrow, mm-hmm. 10 by 20. Not very big. It has a an upper level, it, you know, the ceiling actually is a sleeping area up above, and then they actually had us another loft above that. So you could put uh, you could put quite a few people in it. You could put six people in it easily, you know, for sleeping. And I know we had more than that in there at one time or another. And and there was a down below there was a stove and a kitchen area and a and one table, and you got up and down from the one level of the cabin the other on a, on a ladder that was on the back wall. Uh, and, and the whole thing was built out of, of split Western red cedar. And, and they, uh, and they did all that yeah. by hand. They cut the, they did the, it all by hand. Yeah. Split the shakes, split the beams. Uh, everything was, was made from material that was on the ground. Uh, other than, uh, some plastic window material that they packed in on the horse and, and, uh, the, the nails and spikes to hammer it together and the roof was was split cedar shakes and uh so yeah it was it was all just part of the woods and uh and it was on a on a creek and uh and it was a uh, it's about oh low enough elevation that the snow melted out you know fairly early in the spring and uh and it was uh, uh, usually the uh, we when we had when we had hunting through Thanksgiving, that was about the time of year that the snow would fall, and and about that time, in the late November snowfall. Sometimes you get a couple feet in the winter, and it would you know in, a, in an evening, and, and that would be the end of it. But but uh, yeah, anyway, those fellas that he built that cabin with. It got along really well, and it was, it was, uh, it, it was for me, a young kid in there. They, they, they had, uh, they had kids too, uh, or Bob Kelly did. He had kids about my age, and and Arvine's kids were a little older. But, but the uh, uh, one thing that I remember about those guys, and and I remember it, that it's something I carried with me ever since. Really, is that these were guys. That would not, uh, it would not allow a bad time to happen. You know, I, I, if you had, one of the things that I choose in, in, when I look for a hunting partner is, some people would, won't have a bad trip. Uh, you know, your your tent can burn down, your your tires can go flat on your vehicle, everything's all fouled up, but we're still going to have a good hunt. <laughs> you know, they just will not. 
you know, insufferable optimists or with attitude. Their attitudes are, are indomitable, you know, and uh, uh, they're uh, just upbeat people, you know, in, a, in, a, in an almost a, a sheer force of will manner. And, uh, and that's who he took up to Alaska with him. And uh, we're Kelly and Arvine. Jardine, the fourth member of the group, was uh, the fellow with the horse. He, he'd been gold mining in Alaska with his brother in the 30s. And true to uh, form, he, he announced that, well, I didn't lose anything up there, so I'm not going to go back up there again. <laughs> and, and he stayed home. But Arvine and Kelly went along. And uh, so those guys were the, the nucleus of the folks from Washington. And then the dad needed some more resources up in Alaska. And uh, there was a, a fellow that was a partner in a sporting goods store up there in Fairbanks, Alaska. Uh, Keith Clemens was a sergeant in the Air Force and was a, he taught survival skills to pilots in Alaska. And uh, Keith was an archer and a bow hunter. And Keith wanted to go. And uh, and they found a pilot up there, and uh, a young pilot and an old pilot, and uh, and they had their system, they had their system together, and they, so they went up there in '57 and uh, to check things out and see what they could find, and they, they, they were up there for some period of time, a couple of weeks, and not finding game, not finding the pocket of game that they wanted, and they. So they finally, they had about a week left, and, and they had to do something. They had to, you know, they had commitments to Alaska Airlines. They needed some animals. They needed to have some bow hunting going on. So the older pilot suggested, uh, why don't you check out the little Delta country, uh, and uh, which was a kind of Southern Brooks Range area, this place they hadn't been in. So they went in there, and first flight in there, they, they saw animals. They saw exactly what they needed. They saw a moose. They saw some caribou. They saw there were sheep in there. The whole thing. It's just where they needed to be. So they, they, they got themselves in there with a with a super cub, and uh, and they got a, a good hunt out of it, and uh, had an amazing trip. And it, as it worked out, Dad, when he got looking at the maps, that was the same area within, oh, very few miles of where Art Young was hunting and shot his sheep in the 1920s. It was, so it had, really? wow. it also had this long hunting history of archery in there and that Dad hadn't even thought of when they, when they were first looking for, you know, for, for territory. He, hadn't, he had to think back of Art Young's uh, Alaskan adventures and what, that's where he was. It was in that same area, so... It was uh, it was perfect, and uh, so that that was the first hunt in '57, and uh, and then of course the thing to do once you once you figure out like a lot of hunts the first hunt is you figure out what we're going to do is figure out the next hunt. So '57 was the was the drawing board for '58, and '58. Fred had had heard of what was going on in Alaska and, and definitely wanted to be part of the thing. And, and Dad had gotten to know Fred uh, from 
other hunts prior to this. And so Fred became part of the 58 trip, along with some other fellows that actually nobody that was up there was up there by accident. They were they were kind of a hand-picked bunch of guys that other people had hunted with. And uh, and that was part of why they had such a wonderful time up there, I think. It was just a, it was just a great crew, uh, you know, good companions. And uh, the guys that cared more about the other hunters than themselves, you know, they were, everybody wanted everybody to have a great time. And uh, so that's who was up there. Well, hey, you know. Jay, what, what was the... Uh, I, you said they were hand-picked. I mean, do you know anything about, like, the initiation of bringing a new hunter in? Or, I mean, we're, I mean, because I know how this, like, it works with, like, we have a little group that we hunt with every year. And we're always, like, we want to invite everybody, but we want to keep it small. And this is just in a normal Michigan deer camp, you know. And, uh, but, the, like, the, but. The, the politics and the and the conversations and the you know well well it, it's like well we should invite so and so and then somebody's like well why don't we just invite everybody that we know and the, the you know <laughs> you know oh it's hard you don't want to make people mad you know and well these people came from all different parts of the country like like the uh, Bill Wright was from San Francisco and uh, let's see Jed Grindell was from the Midwest. Uh, and they were just, I don't think they talked it up. They didn't talk up the hunt. They just called individuals and say, hey, we want you to come on this trip. You know, and, and, and they, the people they called, they kind of figured when they called them, if they could come, they would come. Mm-hmm. And it all fell together really quickly. So it wasn't it wasn't like they had a recruitment net out there. <laughs> they, they knew, they'd already, before they were done in 57, they knew they wanted to be up there in 58, I think. Gotcha. You know, the, the guys that could come. And uh, and bow hunting at the time was a pretty small community, really. Uh, particularly the guys that were really wanting to get out and, and do something far afield, you know, the, the, the guys that were were ready to go. And uh, and they could afford to go because it was, it, part of the thing was the time. they When they went up there, they went up there for the whole season. It was like five or six weeks. Wow. Uh, so it wasn't anything like what, we, what you do right now where you go up there with a guide and you're on a 10-day hunt. They were on a, a five-week hunt. And, uh, and I, think that, I think that the first trip, the 57 trip, maybe it was the 58 trip, I think it cost them $1,500 a piece. But that was a lot of money back in that. It, back it then. was, but it took them out of it took them out of their livelihood for that long period of time. Man, sure. and uh, so it was a real commitment, and uh, and and not everybody stayed for the whole trip, but some of them did. You know, there were guys that were flying in and out of the place. Not everybody was there for five weeks, but my dad was there, Arvine was there, Kelly was there for the whole thing. So, and, so uh, Jay. Yeah. Um, your your dad, um, Glenn St. Charles, but give us the, the full names of the other participants. Oh, Bob, Bob Arvine was right. from Vashon Island, Washington. And uh, Robert Kelly, Bob Kelly, was was from uh, South Seattle. He was uh, one of our local club members. And uh, he uh, Arvine was uh, kind of a private contractor, logger, uh, I think he had the. I think he collected the trash on Vash, on Vashon Island. You know, he he did probably did half a dozen different things, but he was a very handy guy. And uh, and uh, and our uh, Kelly was a had a TV repair shop, 
uh, and uh, that's what he was doing at the time. He was a Navy veteran, uh, Navy cross winner, actually. He was an aviator, and, uh, but he wow. got into TV repair. And uh, so, um, I'm going I'm to go back to the to the Cedar Chalet for just a just a little bit. So, what what was the year that that was actually built? Uh, 1950. And who were the yeah. who were the uh, who of this 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 party of people that we're talking about? Who were the actual ones that that got in, got their hands dirty, and and helped build this with your dad? Well, it was it was uh, Bob Kelly, Bob Arvine, and Bill Jardine. Uh, and Jardine was uh, was was the fourth member, and they they were members of our local archery club. Okay, uh, and uh, and. And like, as I mentioned with Jardine, he he and, a, and his brother had been gold mining up in Alaska in the 30s, uh, and uh, it, which made him quite of an out quite an outdoorsman as well. So these were kind of very singular guys as far as the outdoors went, and but insufferable optimists and uh, guys that just you know indomitable spirits. They uh, uh, you know, they were just a great, they're the kind of people you want to be outdoors with. You know, you never know, get to know somebody until you go out in the woods with them and go hunting with them. And, sure. And uh, these are the guys that were my outdoor examples when I was a little kid. And, uh, and, I, and I didn't fully realize, you know, what an opportunity that was or the guys I was meeting until I got much older. Uh, you know, what, what terrific companions my dad had had. And, sure. Uh, well, you'd have to to be with somebody for five weeks too. I mean, I can't even imagine. I mean, I can't not, imagine putting up with Nick for five. Well, weeks. I was going to say that I can't imagine you putting up with me for five weeks exactly. I mean, and, and let alone, and then you know, and actually buildings. I mean, because at that point you're living out there. I mean, oh, yeah. that's that's it's not your, just like a hunting trip. It's your home. Yeah, you're sustaining your yourself, and yeah. you're you're living out there, and I mean. I mean, Steve, Tom, and I can hardly pack a truck the right way, let alone build a chalet. <laughs> I can pack the truck fine. It's Nick that can't unpack the truck because stuff gets broken. Uh, <laughs> but but seriously, like that, I can't even. You you would have to have a really special bond, and I I, I love that I love that insufferable optimist line. That's just and what was the other thing you said? Indomitable. Um, spirit, indomitable yeah. spirit, and, and and insufferable optimist. I those that's great. That's yeah, um, yeah. They and they were they're you know, looking back at the chalet. You know how small that cabin was. These guys pack stuff in there, but the stuff they packed in there was pretty minimal. Uh, and they were kind of minimalist guys. They 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 tended to like to get by with almost nothing. You know, uh, an extra shirt. And uh, you know, and, and some bow hunting tackle, and enough food to get things going in a in a care, you know, a, a Coleman stove, and with a little reflector oven, and that was the whole kitchen. Right. And uh, and we had a an old laundry stove, and, and by that I mean a, a stove that would take long logs. It's one of these low stoves you could put a whole laundry tub on top of. You know, if you know mm-hmm. what I'm talking about, like it have it's a small low stove. That's long enough to take put a pretty big long log in, 
and but it'd have a cooking surface on top and uh, so we called that the toad that was the black toad that was the stove and that toad was in there for oh 30 years I remember I remember when I was in high school that some some Baird got in there and and knocked it off uh, its legs and had broken the back end out of the thing but we were still using it with the back end open and uh, we just put a little bit of aluminum foil on the wall so we didn't catch the cabin on fire and uh, so that was the camp and uh, and it was that was the crew that so, was the crew mm, yeah. so, so so I want to come back to the the Cedar chalet at the point when you know when you actually got the opportunity to hunt in that area but before then if we go back to uh, hunting the little Delta there's been some uh, pretty other famous names that actually hunted that area with with glenn as well right well yeah yeah and 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 then dad's last trip in there i I can't remember if it was 60 or 61 but then other people went in there after that after they went in there without my dad and uh but they're a lot of them were connected to uh, uh like dick mock from nebraska Dick, Dick was in there more than mm-hmm. once. Uh, other friends of Fred uh, uh, that went in there. Uh, now, when did Fred? Dale, when did Fred start Dale, hunting? Dale, Fred, Fred went in there in '58. He was on the second trip. Yeah, and uh, which which made him kind of a plank owner because that was the first real organized trip. '57 was 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 about a week or ten days. It was the tail end of the season and. And it was a desperate attempt at getting some full footage of people bow hunting for Alaska Airlines. Right. And so it was really the planning trip for 58. And 58 was, was the big trip. And then 59 was a big trip. And uh, I can't remember which trip Fred got his sheep on, but there was, uh, when you went in there, you had a fistful of tags. And uh, you know, the tags were not horribly expensive at the time. I don't know what they really ran. Like I say, the whole trip cost them all about 1500 bucks a piece. I think that was actually the 58 one. That was the long one. That's where they, they paid their own way. They they were off of the... They were away from Alaska Airlines now, and they were on their own. And and they were making a movie for Fred. Fred Fred got a, made, made some footage on that. And uh, my dad told me once he never... When Fred was coming along in a hunt, you never quite knew which Fred was coming along in the hunt. It might be Fred that was just a loose, easy-going bow hunter Fred, or it uh, might be the Fred that was on there on a mission to make a movie or something. Right. <laughs> and, and and they were the same person, but but there was there might be different goals on the same trip too. But uh, and uh, so there was a point, you know, there was a point to the the trips and, and one of it was making the point that you could harvest big game animals with a bow and arrow big animals you know trophy animals even sure and, uh, so that was in and, and, and my dad and fred had the same idea on that they're in the same wavelength and uh, uh some of the other fellows who were in there uh actually uh uh arvine and kelly uh were they they were paid in part to be in there they brought him in as a camp helper, and that made, that made it easier for Kelly and Arvine to be there. But they were priceless, and uh, and in fact, Kelly and Fred got along so well 
this is the same Bob Kelly that later became CEO of Bear right. mm-hmm. uh, in the in the 80s and uh, is also in the Hall of Fame and very deservedly so. And uh, just a, uh, Dick Latimer in his book uh, uh, the uh, about Fred Bear, I, I think he's... I can't remember the title of Dick Latimer's book. Just stuff. Yeah, it's a great book. He's got a chapter on Bob Kelly in that book, and uh, he gives Bob a lot of credit. But uh, yeah, it it was uh, uh, it was no mistake or it was no accident that the trips were a success because the the area was so good and whatnot. And, uh, now my my brother uh, Joe. Joe St. Charles uh, paid the cabin a visit in 2002. Uh, and none of us, none of our family had been in there for ages. And we're talking about and the they, Cedar Chalet again. Right? No, no, no. Now we're, now we're shif- shifted gears. Yeah, the, uh, if we went to the Cedar Chalet, uh, uh, what I was talking about really was the there was a cabin, there's a trapper cabin up on oh, the okay. Delta. And okay. we didn't really mention the cabin. That was what they were cooking up. I and mean, the cabin was a lot. It was a little bigger than the Cedar Chalet, but it was a an old trapper's cabin that was just at the right spot in, up in the little delta. And uh, when they first found it, it had trees growing out of the roof. You know, uh, it had kind of a sod roof on it, and uh, and that was their base of operations. And uh, in 2002, my brother went into the little delta cabin just to just to, to go in there okay. and uh, he took his new bride in there with him and, and uh, they were in there with uh, <laughs> another bow hunter by the name of Ron Shear who was guiding grizzly bears up in Alaska at the time so they went in and took a super cub in as far as they could and they ended up still walking about 10 miles to get into the cabin yeah, wow. uh, and it's, it's still bed. there in 2002 yeah and there's still there's still people using it there was actually a, a sheep hunter sheep guy that was in there when they got there wasn't that happy to see him, actually. <laughs> and, That's and, incredible. Uh, so it was still in use. And, uh, but they, and uh, so Joe got rummaging around in the, in the garbage dump there and uh, found this pair of uh, size 15 uh, uh, red wing boots that, <laughs> that were Fred's. That Fred had thrown out of it. Yeah, yeah, they were Fred's. Yeah, he chucked them out there sometime in one of these hunts, you know, decades before. But stuff doesn't rot up there like it does down here, and they were still. They're, in fact, they're in the museum right now. They're in <laughs> wow. the Pope Young Club Museum. They still look like boots, as you can tell what they are. That's awesome. And uh, yeah, and he brought a few other trinkets home, but. And it's still, I've talked to a number of people that have. I've talked to Air Force pilots that have landed helicopters up there. People drop in on it occasionally, and it's still, as far as I know, it's still being hunted out of that, that little Delta cabin. And, uh, wow. That is really cool. But now the Cedar Cabin, the Cedar Chalet, uh, I, I last hunted out of it in 95. And, uh, but we, uh, it, it was in use by my dad and his hunting buddies and Arvine and, and Kelly and those guys and Jardine. Until about uh, the late fifties, and they found another spot uh, about three or four miles away on a little higher elevation on another ridge, 
and they built another cabin up there called the fort. And the fort actually garnered more hunting activity after the late 50s. And because it, uh, it was on a migratory path that mule deer were using. Uh, there was an area up there they called the park, and it was a kind of a little open meadow. And I can think of, oh, at least five of these big you know, mountain gator, mountain gator mule deer, <laughs> as they called them, that all came out of that park within about a five-year period. And... Uh, that's where everybody was going. So that, that by the late 50s, early 60s, the chalet was still getting used, but not much. Those guys were all up at the fort, you know, the original plank owners. And so uh, it was about 1966 or so I got was able to get a driver's license. And, uh, and uh, I and my, some teenage buddies started hunting out of the chalet because nobody else was using it, and it wasn't. It was good enough for us, and it was our, like it was like our own cabin at the sure. time. And uh, so that began a, a long period of time. Uh, the uh, a typical morning at the chalet was there was a, a ridge we called the hill behind the outhouse, and that would be the first place you'd head. It was up, you know, if, if we would tell each other that I'm going up on the hill behind the outhouse, or I'm going to MQ Ridge, or I'm going to the burn. And we'd all take off different directions out of the cabin, but this all the, sounds uh, eerily similar to Escanaba in the moonlight. But I'll—I <laughs> was thinking the same exact thing. <laughs> yeah, well, we didn't. Yeah, we we didn't have the. We almost had some of the same level. Some of the some of the high school kids that were in there were in the same level of characters too. <laughs> nobody was nobody was drinking that particular porcupine concoction that I yeah, remember. So. But but uh, yeah, no, it was. This place it had its own place names. It had its own history. Uh, the trail to get into the chalet was was only a very scratched trail. In fact, they they made uh, Jardine even they took his horse in there and only took it in a few times a year. And they wanted to hide the trail. They didn't want a really big trail because they didn't want people to find it. And uh, uh, I remember being in there one time and some guy stumbled into the place and he was lost <laughs> and and he wanted to know how to get back out to the road well he didn't send him out the way he came in <laughs> he says if you if you head due west you know southwest and about three miles you hit the McHugh Ridge Trail and then you can follow it out that's the way out of here <laughs> and that's what, that's what they did so uh yeah, we didn't want uh, a lot of souls in there. Now, there was another cabin just a quarter mile away. Some other guys that were local club members built another cedar chalet. Uh, called They called the Bucktail Lodge. And uh, it was built the same way. It was a little bit bigger. I don't think it was as cozy. Uh, it didn't have an upper floor like the chalet was. And that was part of its charm is you'd get all the heat from the stove and go upstairs and it would, sure. you know, keep everything warm up there. And uh, so there was a period of time that the Forest Service uh, did some land trading, and they they ended up with uh, a different checkerboard affair than would have been up there. And and at the time, the Forest Service this would have been uh, 
oh, late 70s. This is quite a bit on in the history of the thing. But they did, decided they didn't want any squatters cabin on Forest Service land up there. So the, the Bucktail Lodge was on Forest Service land. So they burned it down. Oh, no. And, and they burned down another cabin that that was on another ridge that, that Arvine actually had built. And but the fort was on, on uh, for, was on timber company land, and so was the chalet. So they so, didn't touch it. So they it. were spared. Hmm. They were spared. Yeah, somebody actually you know went to the trouble to survey things and find out where things were. So, so Jay, yeah. you mentioned you mentioned. Uh, we'll, we'll bring you back a minute because it was something that I really enjoyed about the book is is some of the some of the names that that your dad and crew would come up for for these animals, and you mentioned mountain gators. And I know there was also uh, mossbacks. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah. tell tell us what the tell us what the two, the differences were between the mossbacks and the mountain gators, and then I'm, I've got something I'm gonna throw in there about the mountain gator. But go ahead. Well, a mountain gator was a good deer. It was a deer you wanted to take home. Uh, a mossback was was a, just a giant a deer, and uh, and. Uh, it, it was more in most cases it was a, it was a deer somebody saw but never got <laughs> the moss back the moss back yeah yeah and uh, but there were uh, when the migration was going through you might see anything up there you know sure. and uh, and that was that they, Kelly particularly my dad too though my dad had name they had nobody called anybody by their first name uh, Jardine was was named Cy and uh, Actually, Arvine was just Arvine. Uh, my dad was called George, and uh, and Kelly had uh, uh, he had names for about everything, uh, and uh, gosh, he had he was about the most you know colloquial person that I bet. And, and so they had they had nothing was called by what it was, and uh, and uh, and that. That was true up when they got up the little delta. Uh, you know, Fred was Fred, but uh, uh, gosh, everybody got a nickname anyway. Sure. There's, in fact, there's a chapter in in Latimer's book again. There's a whole, it's a list of about thirty things that sayings that 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 Kelly had. So uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna divert here just a, a second because I got I've got to get a little story in here because uh, you know I, a lot of things that I that I do that don't seem to have a lot of uh, rhyme or reason on the surface actually there's there's a much deeper story and this is this is one of them so I think we mentioned um, when we had you on before that you and I met in 2012 at uh, in South Carolina on in Hog Camp. And that, that hunt, I was actually hunting. I'm a, I'm a, uh, American semi longbow shooter. That's what I prefer to hunt with. That's what I prefer to shoot. And I was hunting with a, a Howard Hill, um, uh, brand of longbow and the model is, is all Osage and their, the model is called a crocodile. Um, so I was hunting that was the year I met you and Tom, um, subsequently I'm, I convinced myself that that, that bow had a curse or just really bad mojo because I could carry any bow I owned into the woods and I would see animals except for that bow. If you carried that bow in the woods, you'd see nothing. <laughs> 
So I, I, I made a comment to Tom that I was going to sell it because it was it, it was cursed and, and Tom bought it. Uh, Tom didn't believe me, but Tom later sold it because he said it was uncanny. It, it, you would never see an animal with that bow. But I, I loved that, that all Osage longbow. And, and I thought about for years about, you know, I want to get another one made. I want to get another one made at some point and, and just kept putting it off. And, and then you and I were talking on the phone one, one day, and you actually told me that you had some old Osage billets. Um, and I forget, I know there's a story about they, they came from, sure. from Compton's and maybe you can, you can fill that in, but, um, yeah. We we decided I was going to have you build me one of your classic longbows, but out of all Osage, and I know you you predominantly work with with uh, Pacific U. And as I was sitting back trying to think about a name for that bow, I said, you know what, I'm gonna pull out bows on the little Delta, and I'm gonna go back and just start browsing through it. And it didn't take two minutes, and I landed on a page that had Mountain Gator on it, and it was just like fate. Uh, I met you shooting a bow that was a hill crocodile and there's mountain gator staring at me. So that bow ended up getting named mountain gator, which uh, to me is just a great, it's just, it's, it's just a cool story. No, and I, that, and that, I would like that, to, Oh, go ahead, Jay. You, you, you go ahead. Oh, on without it. And that one didn't have deer repellent on it. That was the, no, <laughs> yeah, yeah. no, it's actually already, it's already <laughs> brought some deer to the freezer. So, yep. and, uh, and hogs and our listeners should know. That there's been a lot of fate in Steve's life in regards to bows, because he's got a lot of them, and they all have a better story than everybody else's bow. And I'm starting to think, starting to I'm starting to think he's making it up every time he wants a bow. <laughs> Actually, there's only there's only about three three like that, but. Yeah, there are three that have really deep. Stories. No, that's very true, and 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 you, your bows that you got from Jay are very special to you. I know that, but they they that one I like that story in particular. I uh, that one and charisma both. Um, but yeah, my, very cool. My my favorite bow. I I guess I could call it my favorite bow. My oldest hunting bow I have right now is called Mister Snappy, and. Uh, I built it back in '98. In fact, it was the last bow I built before he moved to our new shop, and uh, and it was named after Randy Johnson's fastball. Uh, Randy Johnson was a pitcher that we had playing for the Mariners back in the in the '90s. And oh, absolutely! His, Mr. Snappy was his fastball would either he'd either strike out 15 people or he might kill somebody <laughs> <laughs> because he was either on or off. And that described my shooting style. Usually I was, I, I would have a great day or, or I might not be able to hit anything that day. And I knew cause you, you could usually determine that by the time I left camp, it was not a day to shoot, but yeah. And I'm, and I'm sorry to tell you, Jay, you can't blame that on that bow. Cause I've actually got to shoot Mr. Snappy. And if I were, I remember correctly, I got really lucky because I hit, I hit that, uh, I hit that rubber ball or the ping pong, whatever we were shooting at with the first yeah. arrow. I couldn't yeah. follow it up. I think I spent 15 minutes trying to do it again. But Yeah, well, after you shot that bow, it shot good for me for quite a while <laughs> after that, too. So whatever you did kind of realigned the molecules in it and made it. Made it made it a little better for one. And I and yeah. I appreciate yeah. the baseball reference too because I'm a I'm a big baseball fan and, and one <laughs> one of the first pitchers I ever saw. Um, I went to a Tigers game when I was in Little League. And uh, 
Randy Johnson was pitching for the Mariners, and that was that was the last year that Ken Griffey Jr. and Ken Griffey Sr. played together. And oh yeah, yeah, and it was, and they both hit a home run that game. And I, well, that was we needed it too. That was, that was at that time the Tigers always had our number. Well, and we weren't good. At, was, we, we weren't very good, and the Mariners were worse. And I mean, that was the first <laughs> we were. But that was, but that was when that was yeah. when Ken Griffey Jr. had just kind of like he was a rookie, and he kind of rejuvenated yep. the team. And he I, did. and I remember watching Randy Johnson warm up. And I, I went up to the. I remember going up to the by the dugout, and I saw this big lanky, bird-looking dude that just scary. He had the meanest <laughs> look on his face I've ever seen. I mean, the guy just looked. <laughs> Absolutely. And he had the mustache, but when he the things he was doing to this catcher's mitt was, I, I don't know how anybody ever could stand in on that. Like he, I mean, he looked like he was about eight foot tall, and yeah. and so. You know, I think I just think that's a pretty cool he reference. Was. And I mean, and one time he actually did hit a bird and it evaporated, and they got it. Yeah, on, I remember and they that. got it on tape. <laughs> yeah. But no, that's a really cool name for a bow. I I I really I like names. I like I like when people name Me things. Too. It's just, and I, I think that's another reason why I like the Delta and and your Kelly references because yeah, I, I read the I read the Latimer book too. And, oh yeah, uh, yeah. For the life of me, I cannot think of the name of that book either, Jay. Um, but I thought it was um, I thought it was uh, Trailing a Bear, but that's Munger's book. Um, Pop, something about Papa Bear. I remember Papa Bear. That's what the Papa name of it Bear. Is. I remember Papa Bear. Yeah, yep. that's and there, there's a lot of cross references in those books. And and um, but it, again, you just get that whole vibe of just one of the guys. Like here, yeah. here, you know, yeah. these are like some of the forefathers of bow hunting here, and you've got there's just you're in camp with them. You're like you get you get the character after a while, and I I really I really like that, you know. Nick, did you know I have a third bow that's actually um, got a that has a name that's referenced from bows? I I have valiant. Yes. Yes. We did, and we haven't. You haven't talked about um, the valiant made. Jay? Oh no, no, that was that was got into the Valiant Maid when Fred was starting to he wanted to hunt a brown bear, and uh, he needed somebody that would some guide that would would take a bow hunter after a brown bear, and uh, somebody told him about this fellow named uh, Ed Builderback from Cordova, and uh, Builderback was. Was uh, he ran a fishing boat called the Valiant Maid out of Cordova, mm-hmm. and uh, and he did all kinds of different things with that fishing boat. At the time, they there was a bounty on hair seals. He'd hunt hair seals, and 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 he would uh, at one time he got involved trapping wolverines for for some for some zoos down in the states, and they. You know, live trapping wolverine is not is a lot different than hunting wolverine. Sure, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and uh, if 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 it was anything that could be done, builder bat could do it. He uh, he seemed like a very unique individual. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah. He and he, he long after he was a fairly young guy when he took Fred out on his hunts. But he he uh, so they found builder back and and uh, and that began another whole career. Uh, of hunts and because uh, Builderback knew the coast of Alaska intimately in Shelikoff Straits and, and Kodiak and, and uh, all those little islands around there and uh, and he 
he knew where to catch king crab. He uh, he he was a unique guy, and uh, gosh, years after Fred Fred's hunts, guys went up would go up and you know I think I think uh, Mike Mitten. I was getting ready to say Mike stories. Mm -hmm. He wrote some stories about Ed yep. and uh, got to know him really well. Uh, Ted Nugent went up there, spent some time with with uh, with Ed Bilderback. Uh, one of my one of my only peripheral archery hunting friends, a buddy from uh, the UP, actually uh, the Finlander from the UP that ended up he and his wife were from the Nagani. Uh, uh, area and they ended up in Alaska and and Scott Jopi ended up building some buildings with him with Fred, with uh, Builderback as a carpenter helper at one point. Uh, everybody knew Builderback hmm. and uh, and so yeah yeah and I uh, eventually the, what happened in the end was uh, uh, Ed was was driving. The valiant maid, you know, they were going somewhere, and he fell asleep at the at the helm and hit a rock, <laughs> and that was the end of the valiant maid. That was much into oh two thousands late late nineties anyway, and so it was. But but that was that was, and he didn't get another boat that I recall. I don't re, I don't recall that he did that. But that was his retiring moment. That was his retiring moment. Yeah, or it was the Valiant Maid's retiring moment, anyway. Right. But uh, Ed, Ed spent his time between Hawaii and Alaska. He lived both places, and that's true of a lot of Alaskans. If they're not in Alaska, they're in Hawaii. You know, the states have things in common. Sure. So, yeah. So, so Jay, I have to, I have to ask: um, Have you have 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 you ever laid claim to your own mossback? No, no, that's still, I still, Nason Crick still owes me a big mule deer. And, uh, and that's still a, a prime goal. And I haven't, I haven't pursued it every season, but that's probably what I'd be more excited about than anything else is to get a nice, a nice four point mule deer. Doesn't have to be a, a mossback, just a mountain, a mountain gator would do fine. But, uh, the, uh, and they're still up there, uh, and it would be nice to get it out of Nason Creek, but I would like I would like to get one out of Washington State, which I haven't done. So, well, you know, we keep we keep talking about I'm gonna come out there and hunt with you. I think I think I think maybe I'm just gonna have to take you up on it one of these days. And I don't even care if I hunt; <laughs> I just want to go with you. I'll I'll help you. I'll help you. I'll help you drag the mountain gator out. Yeah, and I'll uh, the, I'll break stuff. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. That sounds like fun. That sounds like fun. They. Uh, it's more common to see a black bear than it is a big mule deer in in Nason Creek. It's a, uh, I know that it's 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 a, always been a black bear ripe environment, and and uh, these black bears would get into the cabins and raise havoc, and and that was a whole other, a whole other story and the thing. But I, I I know uh, we had one season, uh, the first two weeks of the season, they got three whole mule deer out of Nason Creek. They got seven black bear. Wow. <laughs> the same thing. I even had one customer that told me he, he shot a, a small doe uh, somewhere down in the lower reaches of Nason Creek. And, uh, and this little black bear showed up and wanted to, wanted to fight him for the deer. <laughs> and he, he, it took him, he, 
he had this bear tugging on his deer all the way back to his vehicle and and he wanted to know if that was normal. <laughs> it's a young kid. Young kid. He eventually got his deer away from the bear. But I'd never heard anything like that before, wow. you know. But, but and, uh, yeah. And, and, Jay, just recently you you did go back in the area, um, and the Cedar Chalet is, is still there today, right? Yeah. One of, one of the – an old high school friend that, that used the chalet, in fact, in the 70s, in the – late 70s and uh one of the one of the individuals that actually propped it back up at one time when he went in there and found it some tree had landed on it and he he shoved the thing back into shape and and uh come along it back into alignment and stuck it stuck it together but anyway he he uh leah redden actually was a employee for the state highway department and lived up on on the on the pass and and uh resurrected it and then went in with his brother to, to see if he could find it and they they found it ultimately by and it's in the area it changed a lot it just looks entirely different than when we were in there in the 90s even sure and uh, the sound of the crick he the, the crick sounded right and and you couldn't see the cabin unless you were 50 feet away from it at that time and it was the crick that that homed him in on it is it has its own little you know you listen to something so long and it begins to sound familiar sure and the way that little low crick had its own little gurgling noises that it made that he knew he was hit in the right spot i thought that was really an interesting story and he he's uh so yeah it amazingly enough we had heard stories of its demise there had been forest fires in the area you know, somebody told me it burned up, you know, and uh, lo and behold, there's the thing there. And I, uh, so yeah, it's it's a ghost that still exists anyway. And um, but it it needs to it needs to remain a ghost. I think. <laughs> I, I think I think you're right because like I, I, like I said early on, I know it's it's, it's somewhat famous in the traditional bow hunting community, um, and and I think it needs to be. I think it needs to be preserved as 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 much and as long as possible. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 just sitting in there by itself right now. It's it, it it's not in it's not in great shape. But the uh, it's amazing how a, a western red cedar frame will will stand weather and. Uh, you know, it doesn't. It's uh, sure made of the right wood. So, we used yeah, to funny. we used to use red cedar for fence posts, and I guess people still do. They it'll last forever, even in the ground. Oh yeah, yeah. Do you think they'd ever let you let you guys put some kind of a, like a plaque out there or something? Well, yeah. There's no way to stop anybody from doing anything. Actually, the it's not our cabin. You know, mm-hmm. we don't we don't own it. Uh, it's it's anybody's, and uh, but. Yeah, there's there's some what what was done. The whole place was logged off in the in the early seventies, and they just cut everything down except the loggers protected the cabin. They left a little grove of trees around it, so you couldn't see it. And they did that on pur- it was obvious they did it on sure. purpose. And those guys used it for so a lot of people have used the cabin over the years, and uh, it's. 
we don't even know who those guys are. We never, we never do. And uh, so that's, that's part of his history, you know? Man, if uh, Walls could tell stories, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's just, it would just be really cool to immortalize it and just, you know, the ghost that still, still exists, you know, the Cedar Chalet well, I, used by blank, I think blank, 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 and everyone else. <laughs> I've got a, I've got a picture that, that, uh, of, uh, Bob Kelly and Chuck Kroll, uh, Fred Bear's son-in-law, uh, and, uh, Howard Valentine and Bill Neve and Jardine, uh, and my dad all sitting out in front of the cabin sometime in the mid-late 60s. They, Chuck Kroll came out for just a visit out there. I think he hunted elk also on that trip. And But those guys were all, uh, three of those guys, four of those guys were actually bear salesmen at one time or another, all from Washington State. But they, they traveled around the country, you know, they, they, and, uh, and they're all gone. All those guys are gone now, yeah. and uh, so there's a lot of ghosts in there, yeah. And uh, so I have this thought about going in there. I got to go in there and spend a night in there, and uh, go in there and toast a few ghosts, you know. And uh, that would that would be a that would be truly special. It would be. Yeah, yeah. And my my hunting buddy that was in there was 95. He's gone in 1995. He's gone too. With uh, the uh, so yeah, there's a lot of history, and uh, and the thing is, it's all really it's good positive history. It's good history. There's no yeah, there's, there's no bad history connected to that place. Sure, you know, and I, I can tell of, you, I, I can tell you from from reading the book, we've 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 barely scratched the surface, but uh, on on everything that's happened around the Cedar Chalet and Bows on the Little Delta and all the different. Uh, interconnections within the book that that really come down to those two spaces but uh are those two places but i'll be honest jay i think we should leave the rest of it um to the imagination of our audience and and really uh encourage people to go out and and find a copy of bows on a little delta and 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 read it it's just it's a fantastic book it's uh well you can one thing I've always thought about that book is you can tell how much fun those guys were having uh, on all those hunts depicted in there and without a doubt that that I think is what gives the book its feel mm-hmm. yeah. and I got to go back and uh, and scan it line by line for phrases that Steve missed so I can have a better bow story than Steve. Would I have you make me one? <laughs> there you go. I like that. I, I challenge yeah. you to do so. Nick. I don't think I'm going to succeed because I swear every he like he likes to do this to me too. He'll sneak these little things in where he'll be like, "Hey, you know what that's from?" <laughs> you know, make me guess, and I'll sit there for like half a day trying to figure it out. <laughs> and, and it won't even be a book; it'll be some movie from like the '60s or yeah. something. <laughs> I'll be like, "I never saw that, man." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, anyway. Well, well, Jay, I, 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 for for myself, and I'm sure Nick, you probably have have a little something to say in closing. But you know, thank you so much for for hopping on here with us and 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 sharing this. It's just, um, yeah, it's it's really special stuff. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been a good campfire. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, and you know, it's a good podcast when the when the people asking the questions barely have to ask the questions. I mean, I didn't. I was kind of silent the whole time, but I really didn't need to say anything. You just wealth of information and and stories and 
and I, I again I appreciate it, Jay. Well, thanks for letting me rattle on. <laughs> <laughs> Any anytime. We'll we'll figure out a we'll figure out another topic and we'll do this again. All right. That'd be fun. All right. That'd be great. All right. Thank you, Jay. Take care. Nick, thank you for thanking for uh participating with me, buddy. Yeah, thank you. Talk to you later, guys. Yep. Following this conversation with Jay, I asked him if he would allow me to read chapter 26 aloud for our listeners, it being perhaps my favorite chapter in the book, Bows on the Little Delta. Jay responded that he thought it was a great idea, so I would like to share this with you now. Chapter 26, Trophy Hunting and the Legends. For those of you who wondered through the years of bow hunting why the other guy always seemed to get the big racks, take heart. For every big one taken, there are many lesser racks taken. You only hear and read about the big ones. That is the price that trophy hunting has placed upon bow hunting. The law of averages takes care of most of us. However, like most any other endeavor, some fellows are better hunters than others. Perhaps a survey that Ray Hoff, publisher of Archery Magazine, made in the 70s, will give you some insight and solace. He asked this question of his readers, quote, Who is the best bow hunter in this country today? End quote. After several months of evaluating answers, Roy published the winner. It was a reader who wrote in declaring himself the best bow hunter, with Fred Bear's time and money. Yes, time and money is what it takes, and a lot of bow hunting know-how. Howard Hill, Fred Bear, and Ben Pearson were corporate entities and had no trouble with time and money. It was important for sales that they do well in the field. The company PR folks saw to it that they did. Fred commented to me that it bugged him that he was expected to kill something every time that he hunted. He said that if he thought he would get something every time, he would not hunt. Fred and I got skunked on two of our hunts together. His comment was, you can't win them all. Emphasis on trophy hunting came into its own in February 1953 when the NFAA Pope and Young Records came into being. Before that, if there was a choice, the bigger rack took the arrow, unless you were a meat hunter and liked the more tender steaks. Many hunters in the early days competed in the numbers game. Quote, who killed the most? End quote. Let it be known that the legends were not trophy hunters by today's standards. Art Young, Saxton Pope, Will Compton, Howard Hill, Fred Bear, Ben Pearson, and Chet Stevenson all shot and killed everything that came down the pike. They did it the old-fashioned way. No gimmicks or gadgets. The law of averages dictated that some of their kills would be trophies. Most of those that could meet the Pope and Young Club minimums and fair chase rules were eventually entered. Some were declared world records by their own standards. Pope and Young Club fair chase rules be damned. Fred Bear put many trophies in the record book. He was a delight to hunt with, fun, and always concerned about the others around him. As for Howard Hill, he was not one to get close to any organization. He was not particularly interested in entering his trophies. 
After his passing, his heirs and staunch followers put some of them in the Pope and Young Club record book. Saxton Pope and Art Young hunted the early years before my time. Their hunts in Yellowstone Park, Alaska, and Africa are well documented. They shot many lesser animals, and pictures of them with these animals are pretty common. Ishii was in a class by himself, strictly a substance hunter. He undoubtedly had much influence on Pope and Young. Compton was a mentor to both Art Young and Saxton Pope. He taught them much in the arts in bow making, shooting, and hunting, and Pope commented that when the three of them hunted rabbits or whatever, Compton always seemed to get the most. Chet Stevenson hunted in the era of Art Young and Saxton Pope. This was in the days shortly after the turn of the century and into the 20s when game laws were virtually non-existent. Deer and elk were hunted commercially. Hides were popular for clothing. Deer and elk could be found at the marketplace. Or you could get it fresh out of the hills of Oregon directly from deer hunting camps. Chet, at times, hunted with them. And his written chronicles tells about his brushes with moonshiners hiding out in the forest of Oregon. A visit with Chet in his den in Eugene, Oregon was an unforgettable experience. The walls of his den were covered with archery tackle and blacktail racks that he had taken through the years. Two of them turned out to be number one and two in the Pope and Young Club record books for several years. They were taken in 1916 and 1921 respectively. Ben Pearson's trophies that could meet Pope and Young Club fair chase rules are entered in the Pope and Young record book. These greats are not legends because of their exploits at killing game. They did much to bring bow hunting to the forefront as a sport. They carried the message to us with their appreciation of nature and man, their invention, and their merchandising know-how. They were communicators. And more than anything else, they had one intangible ingredient that is common to legends. Charisma. They lived and hunted when legends were possible. They were pioneers and standouts when bow hunting was still considered a sport by all concerned parties. Simply getting the biggest and the most does not a legend make.